about South listeners. This week, we're switching it up for a very good reason. Gina has been working on a project about television together with friends of the show, Lisa Henriksen and Stephanie Roundtree. Lisa is an associate professor in the English department at the University of Arkansas, and Stephanie is a postdoctoral fellow at Auburn University. Together, they've been collecting essays from a variety of perspectives for a book about small screen Souths. This book was just released by LSU Press in their Southern Literary Studies series, edited by Scott Romine. The essays in this collection, Small Screen Souths, Region, Identity, and the Cultural Politics of Television, run the gamut, exploring several representations of the South on TV. So today, we're talking with them about how the South is represented on television, the way television has entered into and shaped our lives, challenging or confirming popular ideas about the region. Our conversation highlights the complexity of television as a genre, its multifaceted representations of the South, and the importance of taking TV seriously. I'm Kelly Vines, and this is About South. here with Lisa Henriksen, Gina Kaysen, and Stephanie Roundtree, who recently published an edited collection, Small Screen South, Region, Identity, and the Cultural Politics of Television. We're going to talk about some of the, the, the thoughts you were having as you were putting the book together. We're going to walk through some of the chapters, um, and hear some of your thoughts after like seeing the whole collection in print. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for yeah. having us. It's so <laughs> weird to be... Um, I feel really nervous, like I'm on the show now. <laughs> like, on the other side yeah, of the table. Yeah, I'm literally on the other side of the table from you. <laughs> You're doing great. Um, so a few years ago, um, I was thinking I would actually teach a graduate class about the South on television. And I just sort of assumed that there was probably already a book about the history of the South on television because there are so many shows that feature the South. And while there were shows that talked about cinema in the South, um, Deborah Barker and Catherine McKee's um, Southern Ima American Cinema, Southern Imaginary, I realized that there was no book specifically about the South and TV. And so I thought, oh, well, someone should make a book. And then I was like, well, Maybe I should do that. And then I realized I had no idea how to do that. So um, I enlisted Stephanie in having a conference panel where we solicited papers to see what kind of work was out there. And then Lisa submitted something really great that was actually mirroring a lot of the ideas Stephanie and I were having. And so we asked Lisa to come on board, also because Lisa um, has actually published a book before. <laughs> <laughs> and so we thought that she might know um, how one really walks through this process. So she seemed like a really good fit. Um, so that's how it started. And it just started from a lot of great conversations about the South and television. And just as the submissions came in for chapters we realized people really wanted just from the volume of submissions we got we i mean we had wonderful things that didn't even end up in the collection we realized we had to like 
we had something here, right, that mm-hmm. deserved a book specifically about TV. Yeah, I mean, I think in one way this book is it's about um, a necessary intervention in, in Southern studies to connect it with television um, and media studies. So we designed this book to be really interdisciplinary and we're thrilled when we got these submissions uh, from all sorts of folks, you know, in communication studies, American studies, history, all looking at, at television in different ways. You know, but for me, the collection is also just really timely because I kept teaching classes where um, I found students were invigorated by television. I remember like starting fall semesters in August and I'd come in and I'd say, hey, what'd you guys read over the summer? And it turns out that a lot of my students considered their reading work to be what they called watching quality television. And the kinds of stories and narratives that they brought back to the classroom after summers of uh, engagement with television were actually meaningful. It wasn't just wasted time. Um, It wasn't, you know, just mindless entertainment. Um, They were really learning something about how narratives are put together through that experience of seriality. And I found uh, great interest in that because it came back into our classroom into the ways that we were reading novels, thinking about the South and rethinking um, stories about the South too. So, you know, we, we also think about this book not just as a, you know, a scholarly contribution or a contribution to narratives about the South, but as uh, something that could be used in the classroom too, right? To um, help shape and respond to the stories our students are already um, teaching us. Absolutely. Aside, of course, from being able to binge watch Netflix, Hulu, and HBO Go as research, which was in- enjoyable for me, I think for me getting into this collection was a lot about grappling with some of the stuff that we see in media today. I mean, obviously the very fraught political climate that we're in right now. I mean, looking at the way that this region in particular with this long history of not only being a site of institutional racism um, and uh, regressive politics, but also being sort of a container for the nation's experience of those oppressive logics as sort of like receiving all of the nation's um, crap Right. Uh, And I think that that is pervasive in this golden age of television right now. And I think to not to leave it uninterrogated is a missed opportunity to intervene in the current political crisis. And it's also um, a missed opportunity to uh, engage with what both television studies can do for us in a political way and also what Southern studies can do. So I just was incredibly relevant, not only because of this gap in and um, scholarship and not only, and of course, because of um, the way that our students and American culture is consuming, uh, are consuming these narratives, but also because I think this work, especially some of the fantastic contributions that we have in it, um, intervene in really important and timely ways in our current crisis. Yeah, I mean, the other thing doing this collection and thinking about television for the past three years in really intense ways is it's made me not only look for representations of the South in network series or to do, you know, Netflix binges or go, you know, to my Amazon account, uh, but think about, you know, how the South is appearing on the television news, on the Weather Channel, on CNN, MSNBC, which is just everywhere, right? How those narratives overlap or um, contradict the kind of narratives that are part of, you know, fictional shows. 
So one of the questions that I had, um, and one of the things I think this book does really well, is to take the sort of genre of television and interrogate it very seriously um, alongside its content. It's not just we're looking at the content as if it is a book, right? That a lot of the chapters in this in this in this edited collection really speak to TV as a genre. Um, are there any are there any moments in particular that you think are especially relevant in that conversation or where you think that comes through really well? Well, I mean it's it's you're right, it's definitely an issue we draw our attention to in the introduction when we're thinking about um, you know, and, and use that as a frame that runs throughout, you know, I'd I'd argue almost all of the essays, right? Um, but we think about the way that TV uh, is a medium that's very local, it's connected with the domestic, it's bringing these p larger political and social narratives into the home um, in ways that you know, profoundly transform our idea of intimacy, identity, uh, lived gender relationships. So it's virtual, um, it's virtual narratives end up having profoundly real effects. Um, and I think you know that that really starts in the collection um, with the first essay with Bob Jackson, um, who's a professor at the University of Tulsa's essay on mid-century transition, lost boundaries, passing, and early television. When he's thinking about you know how early television and this um, cinema uh, production, this movie Lost Boundaries, uh, becomes played on television. Um, and it brings all of these narratives about race and class and social change into people's homes in ways that you know ends up having pretty radical effects. So, and that's in 1949, yeah, right. That's um, and it emerges. I think what Bob points out in that chapter is that this early television moment emerges because of the censorship on the cinema, and so if cinema censors in the Deep South weren't going to show this movie about a doctor who's been passing for white in a white town and then it's revealed that he's actually African-American and that the town having to deal with that. The movie is set in New England. So it both kind of shows that these racial logics are operating across the entire country, um, but that the way it ends up on televisions in the Southeast because of that censorship that they don't want to show these progress, progressive racial narratives, what they really do then is push that narrative into people's homes. The town of Keenum, New Hampshire is typical of many small New England communities. Though it is a quiet place, one finds many exciting stories in Keenum's history. Its dignified old houses have sheltered many secrets and a lot of them have been scenes of romance, mystery, and sometimes tragedy. Keenum has its share of legends, too, of distinguished ghosts who still haunt some of our rambling mansions. But stranger than any New England legend is the true story of one Keenum family. The setting for this drama of real life is just a stone's throw from the center of town. For as long as anyone in Keenum can remember, it has been called the Bracket Place. The chief characters in the drama played in this old house are Scott and Marsha Carter. I think one of the things we don't think about with TV 
is that even if someone has never had a person different from themselves into their homes, I think there are a remarkable number of people in the country who have never had someone of another race or ethnicity or gender expression inside their house. But what they do when they turn on the television is those people do come into their homes. And a lot of times it's a welcome presence and it's not the same thing as a real presence. But the TV is a lot of times people who live in sort of isolated political communities, that's their first interaction with people different than them. And so when we don't, when we sort of abdicate that television is important or that it's junk or that it's a waste of time, we're really neglecting, I think as Bob points out, the power of how people, put this in quotes, meet other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he does a really great job in that chapter two of addressing what you asked about in particular, the, the form, because he has this fantastic um, consideration of the television itself as this very awkward, bulky machine that they had to sort of cover with wooden um, carpentry to try and make it look like a piece of furniture, to like literally get a machine to pass as furniture that should belong into this space. You'll find no lovelier television cabinet styles than those created by Motorola. Motorola TV, the only television set to receive the Fashion Academy Award for beauty of cabinet design. For after all, when decorating your home, one of your first considerations must be the style and placing of your television set. The, the chapter is really fantastic. He does a nice job sort of talking about how the actual television itself and the way that these other people are coming into your home virtually is all working in that same kind of logic of encounter with other in a domestic private space that can be um, incredibly influential, maybe not always transformative, maybe not always progressive, but certainly you know, deeply influential. What has the potential to also be deeply regressive. Right. That's why it matters Mm -hmm. what is on the TV Mm -hmm. because that may be the only encounter some people have had with any sort of form of what they consider difference. Whichever cabinet you choose will add to the beauty of your home. Sarah Eskridge wrote a great piece um, looking at basically that region-nation dynamic, uh, creating the South as a space full of foreignness, the exotic, um, something completely distinct from uh, the region at large. And she looks at sort of issues of different catharsis in that. And that's a chapter that we, I think, cover a lot of the very iconic, we don't, Sarah covers the very iconic episodes of, you know, Beverly Hillbillies and Andy Griffith and Gomer Pyle and these just, you know, early Southern comedies, um, rural comedies that uh, when we tell people that we've done this book, the first question is always, is there something on Andy Griffith? You know, and so it's exciting to see her use that show in such a complex and and uh, critical perspective, more than simply just considering the humor and how it plays on the Southern stereotype. She considers how it creates the South as a laughable space during the time of the civil rights movement. Yeah. Mr. Bass, mm-hmm. will you pass the bread, please? Throwing food is a sin. It certainly is. You pass it, you don't throw it. I just don't cotton all this. Too daggone many rules. I don't like it. I don't like it. Now, Ernest T., we're just trying to help you fit into society. Now, you want a girl or don't you? Would you pass the potatoes, please? (laughs) Well, what's the matter? 
Yeah, I passed it. I didn't hear that. Don't pass one. You passed the whole thing. Whole thing? Whole thing. In that way, I think it really aligns really well with the chapter that follows it, which is Jimmy Dean Smith's work on Hicksploitation, uh, White for the Harvest, Hicksploitation TV, and the colonial model of Appalachian exploitation, where he looks at Buck Wild and Jamie Oliver's uh, series where he goes in and sort of saves a city by changing their cuisine, right? And he, he does a really nice job of talking about how these images are created in this context for consumption, but not consumption in the way that Duck Dynasty creates an empire of, you know, commodity and paraphernalia that they that are for sale in a Walmart, but instead as Appalachia is created in a national imagination as available to the nation for uh, resource exploitation. And so we get this consumption and commodification, but here it's the resources of the region that become available partly through this creation of Appalachian people as in desperate need of intervention from the outside. Um, and I think that they're definitely working with this capitalist logic of, you know, and also colonial logic, which of course to disentangle those two is also a hard thing sometimes. Um, but it is, again, it's creating something for, for purchase, for, for consumption. What is interesting to me about what you were just saying about Buck Wild, I mean, the, the, this chapter starts with the actual, the, the inadvertent suicide, right, of the, of the three, of three 20-something boys who were submerged in mud, right? And I think that was kind of a collective moment of like, we're encouraging these folks to make bad decisions that really ultimately ends in their death, right? Like, we encourage them to behave recklessly because their bad behavior is now a commodity that we can use to stereotype a region and like that, that same reckless behavior that is encouraged like had real consequences on the lives of these people. West Virginia is a place founded on freedom. For me and my friends, that means the freedom to do whatever the we want. Our motto around here is whatever happens, happens. Thing is that the narratives that cast Appalachia as a region in need of intervention from the outside world, those are not new. So you see basically television taking up the same narratives that we saw in literature, that we see in newspaper articles about the region, that are circulated outside the region. So it's really interesting that you position television, your chapters position television as continuing some of the same narratives the same politics that we've seen in other genres in a more sort of like in a way that is invited into our living room, right? And now that we have reality television, they're not fictional characters in a book that people are consuming. They're actual people who, who both the people on this show and the people that they represent, right? Yeah. Jimmy Dean Smith's essay, 
ends with, you know, it's not just that television gives people scripts for identity and imprisons them in those scripts, but people can also speak back to those scripts, right? And kind of revolt against the ways that they become televised um, and, and seen on a national scale. So he looks at that um, at the very end of his essay, right? Where after he's traced out various forms of exploitation with um, Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution and also uh, moments when Diane Sawyer in 2020 comes to that region um, to basically show those same types of narratives of, you know, food deserts. Um, obesity, hunger, uh, bad teeth, um, how, how the people kind of push back against that notion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, Food Revolution kind of failed as a show um, in part because of that pushback. I don't know if it's going to work around here or not, Jamie. I, I, think it I don't know I'll if it's going to work you. around here or not. Jamie, what it is, I really want to like you because you, you, you're a likable guy. I just don't know if I trust you. Not necessarily you, it's just how the show is actually going to yeah. turn out. That's really interesting. So he sort of crosses the spectrum from representations that might be seen as negative for the for our particular region to some the ways in which the television as a genre enables folks to kind of talk back to those to those narratives about who they are. Yeah, and that, I mean, one of the things that all, all of the essays do is they end up localizing um, how these narratives are working. So there mm-hmm. it's that regional network coming into conjunction with local spaces and the ways that our authors are reading those local spaces end up radicalizing and revolutionizing the very notion of, of that larger network, right? Which historically television scholarship is focused on um, in ways that neglect that kind of push-pull dynamic and end up really reading television as a really static or authoritative medium as one solely of exploitation um, or commodity making in ways that you know deny like it's really more complicated interrelationship with the everyday, with identity politics, with the various ways that we not only consume things, but we, we shape tactically, strategically, the conditions of our own consumption. I think that even though they're in two different sections, um, Sarah Esker's chapter about those rural comedies and kind of this sort of popular notion of put-upon Southern whiteness is a really interesting complement to Joanna Davis McElligot's True Blood. Now, we may not immediately think of something like The Andy Griffith Show, and True Blood is related, but I think seeing those essays kind of, you know, in close proximity to one another in the book, it's interesting because whereas Eskridge is pointing out during the um, civil rights movement, people are consuming this version of the white South that's very whitewash and um, kind of makes like white Southerners out to be sort of these like rubes or non-implicated. What's interesting about how Joanna um, Davis McElligot like reads True Blood is that with the entire kind of oppression of vampires, the real oppressed person in True Blood is a former risen from the dead Confederate general vampire, not this queer black man who is experiencing actual oppression, right? racial and gender identity oppression that it somehow manages to make the narrative into like oh wow like poor white people 
which is what's interesting is that's so bound up with television's form in the South is taking the region and somehow making the story about whiteness. And I think that that's what comes through in a lot of this um, rural South section is how much of people's conception of the region is this homogenous rural white space. People get that notion from TV. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, we couldn't even, there could be a whole book just on shows that do this. I think one scene in True Blood that um, Joanna points out that's really compelling is about how, you know, sort of whiteness is still kind of oppressed in this imaginary world of television is a customer complains in the diner where Lafayette, um, the queer black man who cooks, like works, that that this man in the back who is gender fluid in terms of his sexuality and this has touched his burger and that does the burger have AIDS, which is really offensive. And also it's remarkable that even in the age of vampires where it seems like obviously like bloodborne illness would be like a large concern, you still have this um, homophobia and racism about AIDS on a burger. A problem with my burger? Just a couple of drunk rednecks, that's all. Well, what's their problem? Oh, come on now. It's not worth it. What did they say? He said the burger. What did they say, Arlene? He said the burger might have AIDS. Lafayette. <laughs> Oh, fudge. Excuse me. Who ordered the hamburger with age? <laughs> I ordered the hamburger deluxe. In this restaurant, a hamburger deluxe come with french fries, lettuce, tomato, mayo, and eggs. Do anybody got a problem with that? Yeah. I'm an American, and I got a say in who makes my food. Well, baby, it's too late for that. Fag has been breeding your cows, raising your chickens, even brewing your beer long before I walk my sexy ass up in this motherfucker. Everything on your goddamn table got AIDS. You still ain't making me eat no AIDS burger. Well, all you gotta do is say, hold the AIDS here. Eat it. But I think that scene um, and something that Joanna points out in this chapter really illustrates how a show like True Blood that Im imagines itself as progressive is still not as progressive as it thinks it is. Because if the quote unquote real oppressed person here is really white men vampires, then what agency, what recourse does a character like Lafayette have left? Um, where is he gonna find his resistance if the, all of the language of resistance is once again co-opted by whiteness? And Lafayette throughout the series is used over and over again by vampires and pulled into all of these really intricate storylines where he's exploited by 
white male vampires, most of whom like directly descended from either the Confederacy or like Nordic, right? Like Vi- Eric is a Viking. That's yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So, so literally, you have this black queer character who's constantly physically exploited over and over again by like pre-colonial colonial powers, right? Yeah, that are attached to these like imaginary bastions of like white, like. I don't know, genetics or something. You know, this just imaginary pure whiteness. Looking at the last chapter, or the last section of the book, Dislocating the South, I'm really struck by some of the contested Southern spaces that are just in the titles. Um, Atlanta and The Walking Dead, kind of set apart from, from the South, as it's broadly defined, Miami. Um, Treme and Baltimore um, in The Wire, and then we have The X-Files. And The X-Files really strikes me because The X-Files wasn't filmed in the South, right? But they visit the South in The X-Files. So what is the sort of guiding principle that that collects these last essays together, um, or the theme that they're touching on um, in each of them? I think that the last section is really important for the collection because we tend to think of the South as um, a solid, defined space that I think popularly speaking, but because television is dependent upon a set of literal networks, we have to realize the way that those boundaries and borders are incredibly fluid. There's never been, as Ginny Lightway Scoff said in a previous episode this season, there's never been a solid South. There's never been solidity here. And how the region has changed and grown and been thought about in popular reception is about how, in the last 60 years, how television has told that story. And I think the the last section is important for people realizing, you know, even um, Stanley Orr's chapter is thinking about this idea of the global South and how these global spaces and Hawaii and um, the Pacific Islands are represented as this kind of global sa- space, this global South space as a step out of time. And then we see some of the same kind of assumptions for example, in Tantiana McGinnis's chapter about Miami Vice, that Miami is seen as this kind of periphery, is it Southern, is it not Southern? And that's a question I think listeners of the podcast already know that I find that question of, is something Southern or not? It is a patently absurd question because what we don't know is what someone means by Southern when they ask that question. And so what these essays really do is ask us to examine the container of what we think Southern is and what's in that container and outside that container. And I think what they largely come to is the idea of a container at all is silly because this is a very porous, dynamic space and region. I noticed a lot of urban spaces mentioned in these in these texts. We have Miami, we have Baltimore, we have New Orleans, Atlanta, um, and I think 
one of the things, one of the questions in Southern Studies that, that I'm interested in that we've been talking about recently, especially with the last election, is like, is it a north-south divide anymore, or is it a rural-urban divide? Um, so how do these essays sort of speak to that, uh, that kind of regionalism and, and rural-urban divides? I think Jenny Lightweiss-Goff's chapter on David Simon's Treme and the Wire uh, answers your question best. She, in her, in her presentation on About South previously, gave us a really fantastic articulation of how she approaches southern cities as, instead of the exception to the rule that is rural southernness, um, instead being the location of, indeed, the oldest and perhaps you know, closest to the most historic versions of the South. And not only in the sense of cities oldness, but also in terms of their simply the places where the vast majority of people in the South live because of the economic structures, um, because of employment. So in Treme and The Wire, she uses these locations that are they're not only urban, which is incredibly important, they're also coastal. And that coastal location is important because she engages with the way that the the physical boundaries of the South are actually inhabited by these urban spaces that facilitate not a static, isolated, impervious space, but instead a site that is designed as a conduit to travel between places, to places, from places. And I think that cosmopolitan fluidity is, for her, not the exception to Southern studies, but perhaps the rule. Mm -hmm. This America, man. If you walk through the garden, you better watch your back. Eric Gary Anderson's chapter on the X-Files is perhaps one of my favorites because he gives us this really fantastic tool to think about the South, um, perhaps in the most stark terms it's it's expressed in this collection of a set of representational practices that are literally lifted out of the space and projected onto Vancouver or projected onto a Pacific Northwest landscape. His chapter really brings into clear relief the way that the South is only an idea that the materiality indeed can be swapped out. And actually the one thing that you might think is solid and tangible about the South, the literal geography and the land itself, actually in the televisual South is something that's entirely suspect, entirely produced. Um, and so he, he really gives us the sense of how the South is not real, but instead is created through these representational practices. We're looking for the Lakeview Cabins, Flicker Road. Oh, you passed the turnoff a few miles back. It's uh, pretty tough to find. Uh, math might help. Oh, they're 250 each, plus Uncle Sam. If you don't mind my saying, you folks don't look like you're here for the trial. No, we're with the FBI. We're investigating a pair of missing persons reports. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's big news around here. Everybody's been talking about it. What are they saying? Well, same thing they've been saying for years. And thinking in particular about the X-Files, he's thinking about the South's connection with um, 
the the spectral, the paranormal, right, which registers like a whole host of, you know, Southern Gothic tropes that have long existed. But here they become um, put into the televisual medium to um, to become signifiers of the South in a curiously deregionalized form. That emphasis on ghosts, the paranormal, aliens, it comes into conjunction with this question of what is the real South, as in factual, um, honest, based in reality. Um, and you know, in that way, it connects with the book's larger um, questions and investigation into what is the authentic South, how, do, how is authenticity um, troped, uh, figured, uh, put into narratives and visual representations. Um, but we always kind of question what that authentic South is, right? Because we're really interested in destabilizing it, uh, putting it into a new frame that is emphasizing multiplicity through the various ranges of localized spaces that we're investigating, some of which, you know, really directly push, you know, as in Eric's essay, at the boundaries of where is the South, right? And how is that South refigured in other spaces like Vancouver, British Columbia? Thanks for listening this week. We'd like to thank Lisa and Stephanie for sitting down with us. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Gina Kaysen and Ajoa Danzo are my co-producers. Lindsay Baker manages our social marketing. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This week, we're going to have several episodes from some of the shows we talked about up on our website, so be sure to check it out. Next week, we'll be back with our surprise final episode of the season. Trust us, you don't want to miss it.